Today's podcast is a short but um, interesting podcast coming to you live from uh, Kiev in Ukraine. Um, it's a busy city today. Um, the Euro Championship is going ahead, but today's podcast will not be about football or the Euro Championships. I want to talk about uh, the responses we've had to podcast 76, which discuss why case competitions do not help candidates. Well, this will be our third podcast in response to um, the topic, which has obviously generated a lot of interest and a lot of, um, I would say, heated email exchanges with certain schools and so on. But the point is we, we will continue to stand by what we say because we believe it's in the best interest of schools, candidates and consulting firms to restructure the way case competitions are held. And in this particular podcast, I want to sp- talk specifically about the challenges PhD candidates face um, in case competitions and case interviews, why those challenges exist, and what they can do to uh, overcome these problems. So the way I'm going to structure today's podcast is I'm going to first talk about what consulting firms worry about when they see a PhD application coming through the pipeline. I'm going to then give you a little bit of an example about how uh, an analogy of how this plays through and why you need to understand why it's important. Then I want to talk about um, how case competitions and case interviews can be structured and what PhD candidates can do to improve or to overcome the stereotype, right? So let's look at the four problems or the four red flags that go off in my head today when I see a PhD candidate, but also when I was a consulting partner and I used to interview many PhD candidates. In fact, I hired a lot of PhDs because I liked their deep specialization, but I can assure you I had to go through many more people that I had to reject. So the the yield rate on hiring PhDs is much lower than the yield rate on hiring MBAs. We just had to go through many more. To, to find five PhDs, we had to go through many more candidates than to find five MBAs, for example. So what are the three problems? in, I would say, particular order. The first one is PhDs struggle to operate in team environments. It's a reality. They don't know how to respond in a team environment. In a team environment, they assume their job is to bring out the area of expertise. In fact, they think we are hiring them because they have a PhD in electrical engineering or a PhD in oil, shale, gas research or whatever it is, and they need to bring that out when that is exactly what we're not looking for. And in fact, even today, a lot of PhDs tell me, but isn't that what they're looking for, that they're looking for my expertise? And no, expertise has nothing to do with it. Sure, you've got a PhD. That doesn't make you an expert, you know. Lots of people have PhDs, but you're, you're relatively speaking, you're an expert, but relatively speaking, you're also not an expert compared to someone else who may know more than you. And actually, we're not looking for someone who already has preconceived ideas. We're looking for people who can solve problems from first principles, because if you're solving problems with preconceived ideas, how do you know the ideas you have are correct? How do you know you're simply not just you know, force-fitting a solution onto a problem? So the first thing is the team-based environment. And beyond the way ideas are put forward, there's also the way um, you engage colleagues. But I want to specifically talk about that point with the example I'm going to use with that from the Harvard Business School and INSEAD going forward, right? The second problem with PhDs, or the second challenge with PhDs, is they tend to be overly anxious. You put a PhD into a situation, and because you're taking them out of their comfort zone and the area of first... Well, the way a PhD works is they first analyze an issue to death, and they gain their confidence from knowing the subject matter. But... In a case situation, that basis of confidence is removed. You need to be confident even though you don't know the subject matter. And we find that the anxiety levels for PhD candidates tend to be much more elevated than for, say, MBA candidates or undergraduate candidates.
The, the, the third point is that PhDs are very good at applying their strengths in a controlled environment. So, for example, we've had people who went to MIT Sloan, uh, MIT, you know, PhDs in mathematics, physics, computer science, s solid state mechanics, whatever that is, and so on. And they should be good at math. I mean, they've got 3.9, 4.0 GPAs in you know, a National Merit Scholars and all wonderful things. But they still fail estimation cases. They don't know how to structure an estimation case. Some of them fail the PST. The point is this. It's not that they're not good at what they do. They just don't know how to apply that outside of this very controlled setting, right? So we worry about that. We worry about whether if you put a PhD outside of this controlled environment that they've spent you know, a lot of time building for themselves, how will they respond? And then linked to the strength is that, you know, what happens when you put a PhD into an environment where they cannot draw on their deep well of expertise? You know, how will they respond? I mean, do they really know how to solve a problem or are they just smart because they've spent all their time looking at one problem and know it from every particular angle? There's one thing to know how to attack your area of expertise from every particular angle because you've spent years identifying all those angles. But it's quite another thing to identify multiple angles to attack a problem that you've never seen before. And that's what we're trying to distinguish, you know. And that is why we specifically do not test PhDs in areas that they know well because they're just drawing on past knowledge. We don't care about past knowledge. We don't like smart people as consulting firms. We care about logical people. And I've said this many times. You can be the smartest guy or girl in the room but I'm not interested. I'm looking for the most logical person with an average amount of intellect. The, your ability to logically solve a problem will impress me more than the fact that you know everything there is to know about mitochondrial DNA. It doesn't impress me because you've spent years analyzing that. I want someone who can solve problems off, you know, off their head. So four problems, right? Now let's talk about the most important one. This one about teamwork. I'm going to give you an example here of how this works. So pay a lot of attention here. If you look at the big case schools around the world, Harvard, Darden, Richard Ivey in Toronto, not Toronto, I think it's in London, uh, IESC in Spain. I mean, I'm sure there are other big case schools, but those are the big four, right? The ones that dominate case training. And if you look at the way they, they have a typical session with, with the professor, excuse me, the, the, the typical session goes something like this, right? A hundred people or whatever the class size is gets into the class. And they start debating a case that they were given to read a few weeks before, the day before. And the case usually consists of, the, of a few written pages with some exhibits. And the interesting thing about the way cases are taught is that you, you don't come in there, if the case is discussing a corporate finance calculation, how to work out merger synergies, the professor is not going to go up in the front of the class and do the calculation for you and everyone takes notes and memorizes it. No. The way it works is you've got to read the material beforehand, right? You need to... Um, also, do all your calculations, all the work, complete everything, and in the class it's a discussion, actually it's a debate, in terms of the right approach to do things. And, t and the typical way it will go is like this, right? The lecturer will come in, the lecturer may kick off the case, but the really good ones that I've seen, they will throw the case up and ask someone to start it off. So let's assume the case that, we go that we're going to discuss in the class today, and this is an important example, so pay attention, right, is going to be about a pharmaceutical company wanting to acquire a, a smaller company that's an expert in HIV antiretroviral treatment drugs. And they want to acquire this HIV specializing company because they think it's a big growth market and they need to find growth. So everyone's done the analysis the night before, right? Now you, me, whatever way you want to look at it, you or me, let's assume that we're the same person and we spent all our time, we were working on the case from 6 o'clock at night 
3 in the morning, barely got any sleep, drank a lot of coffee, a little bit wired this morning, too much caffeine. And we've done this magical analysis on how the, 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 the HIV market is going to grow and it's the right market to pursue. And, you know, we looked at HIV infection rates, we looked at the synergies, we looked at all the data and we just had this brilliant storyline to bring up, right? So, obviously, well prepared, but a little bit shy because, you know, you got all these brilliant MBAs there. So, you don't put up your hand very assertively and the lecturer chooses someone else, right? And this someone else has interpreted the data in a different way and they've actually pointed out that while the HIV market is growing, the ability for customers to pay for HIV drugs is actually quite limited because they mostly come from developing economies and the standard of living is low, they, they don't have the ability to pay for it and insurance companies are not willing to pay for HIV medication. And most of the class agrees and the lecturer also likes the point and then the lecturer asks that student who put up his hand first, what do you think we should do? And the, the student actually comes up with a very articulate response that actually they shouldn't look at infectious diseases, they should look at another type of disease right and they shouldn't acquire this company right and the lecture likes this and the discussion moves in a totally different direction now what would what would you do given the fact that you spent all your time discussing hiv are you going to put up your hand and and bring the entire discussion back to hiv even though the entire class has moved away from it this exemplifies the challenge faced by phd students just because you're an expert in an area doesn't mean that that area of expertise is needed right and this is what happens in a, and this is why in a, um, a consulting firms have these group sessions when they hire PhD candidates, right? They'll throw out a problem and they'll want to see how the problem or how the solution, depending on which stage you're of the problem, evolves. But they want to see a couple of things. They want to see that you can build on what your colleagues are saying. They don't want to see you putting up your hand and throwing up some totally unnecessary point or left field point that doesn't build on anything and basically disrupts or derails the entire discussion. They also want to see you put up your hand and politely build on a point your colleague is making. A lot of PhDs, reality is that they struggle at communication. They're not as diplomatic or tact as they could be. And we want to see that you can firstly build on a point your colleague is making, but build on it diplomatically. Third thing we want to see you do is that we want to see you help we want to see you convince someone to change their direction by speaking on a topic you're not an expert. Yes, PhDs can talk eloquently on their area of expertise, but get them to talk about an area they don't know so well and they actually struggle because they assume you're hiring them for their PhD knowledge when that has nothing to do with it. They don't practice learning how to speak in other areas, right? So this example of this you know, Harvard case class explains the challenge PhD candidates face. It's how do you build on the points of your colleagues and take a f conversation forward when you're not an expert in an area, right? And this is why cases, case interviews for PhDs are structured in the sense that they're almost always now group sessions for PhD candidates. I mean, McKinsey, I think, was the first firm to do this of the big three, although Monitor probably preceded them on this. But McKinsey always asks for these group sessions. And the point is they want to see that you can take a discussion that you may not be leading or you may not have introduced or you may not have been expert in and build the points of your colleague. Now, one of the readers who responded to podcast 76 listed the things that should be done as a PhD candidate, right? And she listed five things. The first one is understand the overall goal and know 
her roles and tasks, do well on time and meet expectations, be accountable for her results, and if a mistake is made, fix them and minimize the cost for the team. And finally, she said, if extra time and effort allows, boost the efficiency of the team, both morally and physically. Well, the reality is that point five, I mean, I could actually flip this around and that, and that would be the actual order of priority for what PhD candidates need to do. The first thing they need to do is boost the efficiency of the team by ensuring that the discussion goes in the right direction. How do you do that? Well, that means you contribute to the discussion up front. Second, if mistakes are made, fix them and minimize the cost to the team. And then be accountable for your work. Then do things on time and then understand the overall goal. But you can never understand the overall goal unless you're in that dis discussion with the team. It's a means towards an end, right? Always understand that. Now, how should this work you know what happens in a case competition that doesn't allow this to materialize well in the case competition you can have all these phds candidates postdoctoral fellows and so on who are experts and what's going to happen is when you're given a case they're all going to branch out into their own areas of expertise and start beavering away and working on it right and there's going to be very little discussion and at the end of the time three hours before you're meant to present the team's going to get together the next morning or later that night and try to you know basically smash everything together to get a final presentation and what i point out to people is that five brilliant individual analyses do not lead to one cohesive storyboard at the end i can tell i can tell if there's going to be a good storyboard at the end by listening to the early discussion to see whether there's a lot of interaction and understanding amongst the team members of what needs to happen I, i've been in, i've sat in a case competitions where the the market and analysis team is analyzing a different country and the um, Excel team building the financial model is analyzing the wrong country, right? And at the end of the day, it's quite a mission to put this all together. The point is this. When the team gets together, there has to be true discussions and teamwork taking place. There has to be a proper discussion about what needs to happen. And beyond that, you need to measure these candidates in a case competition, not a case interview, in a case competition for their interaction. And what we do is, you know, one of the worst things I've seen case competitions do is that at the beginning of the case competition, they'll tell people who the judges are going to be, which actually is the stupidest thing you could possibly do because what will happen when that judge enters the room? People's behavior changes. You don't see what people are really doing, right? So when judges say they've judged the team, no, they haven't judged the team. They've judged how candidates respond to judges but they haven't judged teamwork what you need to do is hide who the judges are in my opinion or make them very very um um what's the word i'm looking for people that don't stand out so that you can seed them into rooms and they can circulate amongst uh, the teams and they can look like students themselves and they can then judge the teams but the worst thing is judges will look like judges and they totally change the dynamic of the room and the end of the room what you want is a judge to be able to enter a room and see if there's real team dynamics taking place there and be able to see whether the teams are building on each other's points, whether the colleagues are constructive in what they're doing, whether they're structuring cases correctly. The team environment is most important, right? The other thing you don't want to do is you don't want to tell the teams that you're going to measure them on individual roles. When we've advised teams to run case competitions, we've, enf we've enforced that point that you should give an award for the person who best exemplified consulting values. But don't tell them you're doing it up front and don't tell them that well, these are the metrics. You know, and I've heard people complain, but you never told us you're going to be measuring us on, on you know, value. So how, do you, how can we you know, display those values? But isn't this, that just the point? We want to see people who naturally display those values and who will display them even though they are not being measured on it. And people get upset, but that's the reality of the game, right? There's the big leagues. 
you know, this is not some dress rehearsal for kindergarten whereby you need to know everything that's going to happen. You're either ready or you're not ready. If you're not ready, then come back another year. But the point is this. Case competitions can be structured, I think, better in the sense that, firstly, give the judges the ability to judge effectively, and that means, you know, don't make a big deal about who the judges are. Allow them to circulate within the teams and be able to judge for themselves by being able to see what the teams are doing in the real world. Don't tell people you're judging them on team behavior because then they start, you know, trying too hard to be good team members. Give the award at the end and the person who stands up and does the best job will win. And that's what you want to see, right? But by and large, I think case candidates who with PhDs can do the following in case competitions. So now, we spoke about case competitions. I've given you a few background here, but I also want to talk about... um, uh, some more background details about what you can do in actual cases. I think the first one is that pay careful attention to how to build on your colleagues' points and not be obsessed with throwing in some brilliant insight. Don't throw in an insight, build on a point. And I see this all the time where a candidate raises his hand and wants to put up a very important insight that you think is going to differentiate them, but even though it's not linked to what other people are saying. You have to build on what others are saying. That is very important. You have to be comfortable with working outside of your comfort zone. So there are a couple of ways to do that. One is to practice with non-PhDs. I know PhDs tend to practice amongst themselves. Don't do that. Practice with non-PhDs. And also practice with people who will give you tough feedback. I always tell our candidates, we will give you tough feedback. We have no problem doing that. That's our job. Your job is to respond to that. Respond to that tough feedback. Take it and work with it. And the other one is... Um, Learn to apply your math skills or whatever your you know strong analytical skills are again outside of your comfort zone. You know, if you are really good at math but only doing it in a certain way, then you need to practice doing it in other ways. You have to be able to practice doing math on the spot with very little structure and being able to work your way forward. And then the fourth one is that understand that a consulting firm doesn't care that you what your PhD is about. You could have had a PhD in English literature and studied why Shakespeare gave such poor names to his plays. Or you could have a PhD in material science trying to analyze, uh, you know, I don't know, whatever it was. It's irrelevant to a consulting firm. Do not assume that your PhD field is important to us. It is the logic you applied to get your PhD and the thought process you learned as a result of structuring your analysis that's very important to us. So I've spoken about two things. I've spoken about, well, actually I started off by talking about the the stereotypes given to PhDs. I then spoke about, I gave an analogy of how the problems that PhD candidates have plays itself out in a, in a case discussion in an MBA class. I then explained why that's a problem. I then moved into case competitions and explained you know, how you can maybe structure case competitions differently. And finally, I also spoke about how you need to be aware of how to deal with the stereotype in a case competition itself. As always, if you have any comments, please feel free to respond.